a pleasure to to be with you today on Communion Sunday and uh, the first Sunday of the new year. Uh, we're on page 547 in your church Bibles. The recess bell rang that day in second grade, but for the first time I could remember, the sound of the bell actually made my stomach drop. I didn't want to go outside. A terrible fate was awaiting me there, and it was worse than a bully. I had to miss recess and stand against the wall. The wall where kids stand when they're in big trouble. It was my first time. What made it worse is this wall was actually connected to the lunchroom. It connected the lunchroom to the playground, so you couldn't miss it. And uh, all the teachers I loved, who knew my reputation as a straight-A student, they walked by and they looked at me with faces of disappointment, and they said, Danny, you're on the wall? And you know what, what hurt actually more than missing recess or getting grounded later, was that my failure was on total display, and I couldn't hide. I was hopeless. People generally hate being exposed like this, don't we? Especially when it's true. But this is us before the Lord, totally exposed, can't hide. Except with God, it's not about some little infraction, right? In fact, as we've been going through the book of Mark, last week, Tom Hallman walked us through a really big climax in Jewish history. It was the day that God, who had come down in the form of Jesus, looked at his very own people standing against the wall. And he said, you are evil. His straight-A students, so to speak, his chosen people. And they stood, what was worse, is they stood with the rest of mankind against the wall. There was nobody at recess. No hope of fixing themselves and deserving of God's wrath. So the wall mankind was standing against was less like recess and more like a firing squad. And so there would seem to be no hope for mankind as we begin our story today. Because how do you come back from that? How do you come back from Jesus saying, you're evil, and it's from the inside, and you can't fix it? What do you do? Something surprising happens, though, because though mankind is on the wall and they deserve it, Jesus does not pull the trigger. In In fact, he does something incredible. After this, he immediately begins to help people, and not just any people. He's going to start with the most hopeless of all people. In fact, that'll be your main point. Jesus saves hopeless people. So as we continue through chapter 7, my hope is that you would know for the first time or you would remember your desperate need for Jesus and that this need would provoke you not to hide, not to conceal, but to come into the light 
to turn and be restored. And from that, my hope is that your response would be to explode in the worship of Jesus. That you would not just be content to sit. So let's pick up in verse 34 of chapter 7. Again, we're on page 547 in your church Bible. First point in your outline, Jesus makes cursed outcasts into family. We're going to read verses 24 through 30. Let's pray together for a moment. Dear God, your standard is high, and every day I think it's really easy to fool ourselves into thinking we make it on our own. Sometimes we think it's through our good works. Sometimes we think it's through um, avoiding the bad stuff. Uh, but Lord, your standard is high. We need Jesus every day. The gospel is daily. Help us to remember that. Amen. Mark chapter 7, verses 24. Uh, uh, sorry, we're going to pick up in verse 24, not 34. My apologies. So, uh, verse 24. And from there, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, this woman was a, a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So Jesus leaves the Jews and he goes to Tyre and Sidon. For lack of better words, this is the exact opposite of the religious place he has just left. Tyre was mostly occupied by Canaanites. In fact, this is clarified in an alternate telling of the story found in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. So we're talking about a bunch of Canaanites here. And it's a good 50 miles from where Jesus had just been, kind of the wrong side of the tracks. So who are the Canaanites? Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know they've been cursed for like 90% of it. They've been cursed throughout the Old Testament because of their hate for God. They are a hopeless people. And Jesus goes here, which is a sermon in and of itself, and he doesn't advertise his presence. Now, we may not know exactly why, but we can assume it's not fear of man. We can assume that. But then something strange happens. People are drawn to him here. Word has spread about Jesus to this place. In fact, one Canaanite woman runs to him, comes to him, falls down at his feet, begging him to, to heal her daughter. Now, we don't know a ton about this woman other than her Canaanite heritage. All we know is that she seems desperate for help. So let's see what Jesus does with her uh, with her question. He says this, let the children be fed first. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. There's a reason you won't find this verse on a coffee mug. Did you see mercy flowing out of Jesus here? I didn't. <laughs> Jesus is basically saying, let the chosen people of God, that be the Jews, Get the good stuff first, 
And then, no, not you. You and your people, you're like dogs. Now, as strange as it seems, the dog part actually makes sense. Even if it's a bit harsh. She's a Canaanite, right? They don't get healed. They know they're not going to heaven. But the Jews? Wait a second. I thought they were evil too. Didn't Jesus get done leveling the ground? What's Jesus doing here? Why is he setting up? You know, is that what's going on? Well, I think it's actually a lot simpler than that. I think this is God in the flesh saying to a cursed outsider, who are you? Jesus is forcing her to admit that she's hopeless. He's confronting her with the truth that everybody knows from Jew to Gentile, and he's provoking a response. But look at her response. Look at verse 28. Look at the humility. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She's actually doing two things here that Jesus' own people, even his disciples, haven't even done yet. Let's look at what she's done here. First thing, she acknowledges her hopelessness. God's people didn't do that. She does not go off. You know, you'd think she would go off. Hey, I'm trying to make ends meet here. You know, I never killed anybody. I try to be a good neighbor. You'd think she would say that. But she says, nope, I'm a dog. And secondly, she acknowledges his ability to fix her problem. So acknowledges that she's hopeless, and then she acknowledges that he has hope. She calls him Lord and says, I'll take your crumbs. She desperately wants what Jesus has, and by the way, what his own people have not asked for, help. And so Jesus responds, for this statement, I have healed your daughter. Please look at this if you're grown up in a religious family, because she did not serve any sentence here. She did not pray some fancy, ornate prayer. She did not do ten Hail Marys. Look what, she's, look what she done. She simply and openly, and openly acknowledged at the feet of Jesus that only he could help her. That's it. She admitted her hopelessness, and so Jesus gave her hope because only he can. So, instead of dying alone and cursed, bonus, she walks home to find her daughter healed. Now, if this news spreads, and it did because we just read it, and you're a proud Jewish person who thinks you're good with God, is this story good news or bad news? This is bad news. It means you don't get into heaven based on your heritage. That's not your ticket in. But how would anyone else read this story? Jesus went to the Canaanites? 
He healed one. He healed a woman's daughter. I don't, I can't even begin to tell you the implications of what this means. That Jesus would first choose not just a woman who was just cursed in any culture, but especially in Canaanite culture, but a woman's daughter. This was the lowest of the low. And Jesus says, I'm going here first. Now, Jesus loves her like a dad loves his child. He brings her in. In short, here's the belief change of any desperate person hearing this story. If Jesus can heal this person, he can heal anyone. And I kind of wonder why Jesus did this right after such a harsh proclamation to his people. I think it's because he wanted to keep doing what he's been doing all throughout Mark. He wants to show the hopelessness of the situation and then provide the way out because he's got it. He's been doing that straight through. Because this act demonstrated that no one person is so low that Jesus can't save him. We're going to do more on that later in the application section. For now, I want to keep going and I want to look at a person that might actually be more desperate and see if the, and see if the mercy continues. So Jesus makes outsiders family, but look at look at the second section. Jesus makes dead people live. I'm going to do verses 31 through 37. Then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed to him and said, Ephatha, that is, be open. And his ears were open, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously he, they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, you might have read that section title on your outline, and you follow along with the text, and you might have thought, wait, I don't see any dead people in this story. I see dead, that's a few letters off. Let me explain what I mean with the title. Jesus comes back to the area where he just dropped the hammer on his own people. So he goes out, heals the worst of the worst, and then comes back. And he meets a man who is deaf and cannot properly speak. Now, now, in college, I happen to specialize in deaf education. And so I learned their history pretty well. And let me tell you, these people did not get government assistance or sympathy like they do now. They got nothing. Actually, what most major cultures do was at the best, they would cast them out. And at worst, they would throw them off cliffs. They would do this when they were kids as soon as they found out. So it is no exaggeration when I say that this man, by his own strength, he's as good as dead. It is a miracle he is even alive. He's a man. He's not just a kid. He's grown up. He's an adult. He has friends. That's crazy. And beyond that, this man is so needy, he does not even have the ability to ask Jesus for help. You see that? The Canaanite woman actually has a one-up on him. Look at verse 32. His friends have to physically bring him to Jesus and ask for him. 
You see what's happening here? This man is so hopeless that he can't even ask Jesus for help. He has to have somebody else intercede for him. So what happens? Well, again, Jesus is private in his work. He takes the man aside, and then he sticks his fingers in his ears, and he spits, and he brings the spit to the man's tongue. And even more, in the next verse 34, he looks up to heaven, and he kind of kind of sighs. What a strange inclusion by Mark. What's going on here? Well, first, let's talk a little bit about spit. Kids, lean in. This is fun. Jesus would, else, Jesus would elsewhere use spit in his ministry to heal. Later in Mark uh, 8, so in the next chapter he's going to do it, and then in John 9 he heals a blind man. Now in John 9, the word anointed is used, and that's a big clue. It's because saliva was actually accepted as having healing properties by this time. We know it does, but they had figured it out at this point in history. So here's what I think is going on. I think the deaf man or anybody watching might have seen Jesus using saliva and said, oh, he's trying to heal that guy. This guy's deaf. Jesus can't talk to him. He can't say, I'm going to heal you now. He has to show him something that he understands. That's all. He's comforting him. It'd be like Jesus if, it'd be like if Jesus came up to you and shook your hand. Does Jesus need to shake your hand? No, but I bet that's going to help you out a little bit. So then as Jesus does this, he looks up to heaven and he sighs. And by this point in Mark, I think you can assume that this is not out of annoyance. Like, uh, I don't think we're talking about that kind of sigh. Now here, this sigh is more like a compassionate groan. Jesus looks up to heaven and he's saddened by the need in front of him. This man that he's created out of the dirt that he's taught. How much the fall has destroyed mankind. This is what it's come to. A deaf guy can't even ask for help. Surrounded by people who hate him, who hate Jesus. This man is as good as dead, but Jesus loves him. It's a sigh of compassion. Jesus is relating to him. You know what? I wonder if this deaf man is actually a walking metaphor for Jesus' own people. Just think about it. Helpless, right? Hopeless, right? Totally dependent on Jesus for deliverance, but so hard of hearing they can't even ask for help. I wonder if this is a metaphor. Yeah, Jesus moves into help because they're dead otherwise. They're not getting help anywhere else. No amount of saliva is going to solve this problem. And so this man is healed. So what's the people's response? How would you respond if this happened? This guy comes in and solves a huge problem. Delivers somebody that the secular world would have seen as worthless. Well, Jesus tells him to be quiet because it's not his time yet. But they cannot help but speak. And this man, who can now speak plainly, I'm sure is at the front of the pack. This miracle causes the people to respond by shamelessly, openly worshiping Jesus. Saying in verse 37, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, if 
anybody familiar with the um, with the Old Testament at this time would have heard a very clear reference to Isaiah 35, which says, "Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped." This is referring to God Himself coming to finally rescue His people from destruction, and we're seeing it fulfilled in an actual death battle. An actual outcast. We're seeing Jesus rescue to come back. He's coming back and he's rescuing, first of all, the outcasts and the sick. That's where he's starting. Friends, these two people, the Canaanite woman and this this deaf man, they they were hopeless. Do you know why Jesus saved them? Because they were hopeless. The Canaanite woman saw her hopelessness, and the deaf man, we're not sure, he was so hopeless, people had to ask for him. But in both cases, they saw hope, not in themselves, but in Jesus. So what's the gospel connection here? People can't help themselves, but God can help them. All people can hope to bring to the table of God is need. And you know what? Jesus can work with that. So that's your main point. Jesus saves hopeless people. Now, later on, as we continue through Mark, we're going to see the response of a hardened people, and they're not going to believe that they're hopeless, and they're going to start conspiring to kill Jesus. So we're going to see what happens when you don't respond in worship, because there's only two ways, worship or hate Jesus. But for now... Let's talk a little bit about application. How does this apply to us? I want to talk again. I want to talk about how this applies to your head, what you believe, how it applies to your heart, you know, your affections, and how it applies to what you do, your work. So let's start with your head. And the application is this. You already heard it. Believe Jesus can save anyone, including you. Believe Jesus can save anyone. And I know a lot of you guys are probably like, ah, that doesn't seem that, yeah, I could do that. Let's just, let's roll through and see if we can do it. Okay, here's a Canaanite case study for you, okay? Ready? Picture this. I want you to picture a person in your mind. This person is a popular leader, and he's over in the Middle East, and he's rounding up Christians to have them killed. And he's very, very, very good at this. What would you like done to that person, just personally? Think about what you'd like done to this guy. Think about it just for a moment. If you said, drop a nuke on him or have him killed, that is very unfortunate because I was just describing Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Who are you thinking of? Paul might have been the most unlikely of converts. In fact, he says it himself. But Jesus saved him. Jesus saved Paul. Jesus saved Paul. He was a hopeless sinner. And you know what? He didn't even look desperate like the Canaanite woman. He actually looked more like the deaf man, except he had zero friends interceding for him. You think anybody was hopeless? Paul was hopeless. Sure, he had a great resume. You'd probably want to go to the same school he did. 
You probably want to memorize what he memorized, but you know what? He was hopeless because he hated God. He was dead set against him. So how did Jesus change Paul? You guys remember? He blinded him. He made him hopeless. And if you want to see radical change, watch how Paul lives out the rest of his life after that. Read Paul's writings to the church during his ministry. He knew how hopeless he really was. And you know what? Jesus shined all the more brightly through him. Jesus shined so brightly through Paul because Paul knew he was so hopeless. So if that's true, that Jesus saved Paul, I think he did, it means anyone is a potential Christian because everyone is hopeless apart from Christ. You take a guy with that track record and you say he can be saved, and you say a Canaanite woman can be saved, and you say a deaf person can be restored, there's hope for anybody. So here's how your beliefs change. You don't write anybody off. You don't write anybody off. Now, we say that. Again, we say that all the time. But is that really unconditional in your mind? Like, do you actually believe that? Okay, how about a guy like Jerry Sandusky? Let's just go there. Do you think Jesus can save him? Do you think there's hope? Or do you think he's done? Is he still breathing? He's not done. How about... Let's, let's, let's downgrade a little bit. That might have been, been a little hard to start with. How about the family members you were trapped in a house with over Christmas? You think Jesus can save them? I mean, the ones that aren't saved, not the ones that are annoying. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an annoying family member. It's cool. How about Muslims? You think Jesus can save Muslims? He saved a couple this year already. Just ask Bonnie. <laughs> it's only the 3rd of January. He probably already saved a few. This is a radical belief. This is hard, right? Is it hard? You think it's really hard? Because it depends on people's need and not their credentials. It doesn't depend on what they bring to the table. It depends on everything that they don't. Because they don't bring anything. Now, I think you can actually believe this, but it takes some hard work, and the work is this. You have to know how much Jesus saved you from. I mean, just think about it. How much have you sinned against Jesus in your life? Here, here we go. You ready? A dollar for each sin. What's your bill? One dollar for each sin. How much do you owe Jesus? You paying that bill? You can't pay that. But you know what? Jesus already paid it. If he can afford a Canaanite and he can afford Paul, I think he can afford you. So as your belief changes, then what happens? Your heart follows. Because if you hate somebody, it's because you believe they can't be saved. So here's what happens. Here's how it affects your heart. Get excited. You get excited about God's great plan to reach the nations. You get excited. When Jesus healed the deaf man, what happened? Did people kind of, you know, write it down in their journals and think about it? Oh, people started telling everybody. People got really excited. In fact, Jesus told them to keep it to themselves, and they disobeyed him. They couldn't help it. 
this guy's so good. You know what? That was physical healing. How much more in the case of our eternal salvation? How much more? So the emotional response to this belief that God can save everyone is, or can save anyone is to get excited. In other words, you start to love people that you used to hate, right? You start to love your neighbors. You start to love countries you previously never even heard of. You even start loving your enemies. You don't hate them or hold grudges. You know what? That's easy. A pagan can do that. That's not special. Jesus brought light. How could we bring darkness? So a heart that loves to see people know Jesus is the sign of a heart inclined towards Jesus. You're just living like Jesus did. Go to Canaan, go to uh, the Canaanites. And so how does this heart change then affect what we do? So if we believe that anybody can be saved and we get excited about God's plan to reach the nations, what do we do with our hands? Go fulfill God's great plan. That's it. Just go. Go do it. What's the summation of God's great plan? Jesus said at the end of his earthly ministry, go and make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28. And you know what? That included Canaanites. Now, this seems like a complicated action step, and you know what? I don't want to lie. It is to a point. You know, you don't just don't just go to another country with, like, no planning. You know, you want to understand the culture. You want to maybe speak the language. But you know what? It ultimately comes down to obedience. That's what I want to zero in on. Will you make disciples or will you not? Because that's the outpouring of what you believe. I was reminded of a great illustration of this by an author named Francis Chan. Here's what he said. I love this. He said, when I was a kid, we used to play a game called Simon Says. Simon says it, and you do it, right? Simon says, you do it. But in the church, it's kind of like a different game. It seems like if Jesus says it, you just memorize it. You know, like Jesus said, go and make disciples. But how many people actually are doing that? It's like if I tell my daughter to go clean her room, she doesn't come back and say, hey, I memorized what you said. You know, you said, go clean your room. I memorized it. Hey, guess what? I can say it in Greek. (laughs) Hey, you know what? My friends are going to come over later, and we're going to have a Bible study about what it would look like for me to clean my room. Now, my daughter knows better than that. And so for the church, it's black and white. Go and make disciples. I love that quote also because I have a daughter, and I think she would probably say that to me. I've decided that for the practicals of this, I'm just not going to spout off a bunch of different possibilities because, you know, we're all in different spots here. I want to actually lean in during small group time and have everybody talk about where they're at in terms of making disciples. And what it might look like to go. That's all. Because you know what? Some of you used to do it. Um, uh, and maybe you're in a hard season. You kind of hurt. You Or you were kind of hurt. And you just kind of stopped. Um, some of you do this a lot. And you just maybe just want to take a few steps. Like, hey, how can I do this better? You know, what, what, what can I be open to? Can I be open to a new culture, new people? Some of you, um, to be honest, just don't know where to start. 
Either way, the goal in small group time today is ironically to disciple one another about discipleship. That's what we're going to do. None of us, now again, none of us do this perfectly, but if Jesus, but Jesus can, and if he's in you, you're going to grow. All it is is just, we're going to get together and we're just going to talk about, hey, you know, where are you at? And if, you, if you've never done it before, just say that. That's cool. How can we move from disobedience to obedience or from obedience to more obedience? So uh, go to your small groups later. And hey, if you've sacrificed small group time to volunteer in the nursery, congratulations. You're already making little disciples. Just keep doing that. Keep that right up. How about you guys? When I hear a mission of fulfilling God's great, great plan, I feel kind of hopeless, right? It's Communion Sunday. I don't think it could be timed better because we, where we are hopeless is actually a great place to be because Jesus freely offers hope. And you know what? As Christians, because of who Jesus is, we have more hope than anybody. We have more hope than the most accomplished person. That's why Jesus... When he sent out the disciples, he's just like, oh, you, you know, instead of taking a language choice, you know, I'm going to just, bam, I'm going to just make you speak that language. He just gave it to him. I think he could do that. He wants to help you do this. He sent his spirit to help you. We're not alone in this. We have the spirit and we have each other. Let's take a moment and just reflect. I'd like to invite the um, some members of the worship team up to play music for us. I'd like to just take a moment and reflect, and then I'm going to, Dismiss you to take communion. Dear God, your call is so high. I prayed this early and I prayed again. Your call is so high and we're so small. But you know what? You're good. You can work with hopeless people. You can work with people who know their need. But you know what? You know what's hard to work with? People who just consistently fight to hold on to what they really don't have. So I pray to anybody here who's struggling with defensiveness or, or pride or just doesn't really like talking to new people, that you would just help them realize what you've saved them out of. That you would help them realize that what they have in them is actually very, very, very good news. Would you help us all to take the next step of faith as we love the people around us? Who, by the way, they're hopeless and they need this, even if they don't know it, just like Paul. Lord, would you help us to see us as less and you as more? Amen.